Hello and welcome to Behind the Study. Behind the Study takes an up-close and personal look at the researchers at Ryerson University's Ted Rogers School of Management, as well as its affiliates, any past and current researchers, speakers, contributors, and various networks. Through the podcast, listeners can get a glimpse of their background and experiences that have led them to their role at the Institute for Hospitality and Tourism Research, as well as their careers and profession. Each episode features a different researcher speaking about their interests, influences, and ideas. My name is Parita Shaw, and today I have here with me Norman Shaw, professor and researcher at Ted Rogers School of Management and for the Research Institute. He is an expert in all things mobile and e-commerce channels, consumer acceptance and transitions of the digital wallet, and use of smartphones and technology adoption within the hospitality and retail industries. Hello and welcome, Norman. It is great to be speaking with you today. So to start off, who is Norman Shaw personally and professionally? So in terms of who I am, as maybe you can tell from my accent, I'm someone who was born in England, just south of London. Um, I have had an interesting career without going into a lot of details, but arriving in Canada quite a number of years ago. I've also um, worked, well, the industry where I've worked has been retail. And I've come relatively late in my career to academia and research. When I say relatively late, I've been at Ryerson now for 13, 14 years. But prior to that, um, I was in charge of technology at uh, a retail company in Canada, a very large retail company in Canada, and also at a very large retail company in the United States. And I also did some work in the hospitality industry in the United States, um, both Los Angeles um, and in Chicago. And then when I joined Ryerson, I enjoy, of course, the teaching, and then I got involved in some specific research areas. Great, thank you. So to get to know you a little bit more, what does your role look like as a researcher and as a professor? So as a professor, I have two courses per semester. And at first, it doesn't sound a lot, but as you students know, there's an awful lot that goes into preparing a course for making sure that students are engaged and keeping the, keeping the students up to date with all the marks, etc. So there's the preparation of lessons and keeping it up to date. Uh, the two courses that I teach, one is digital marketing. And over the course of, um, what, 10, 12 years that I've been teaching this, this has changed enormously. If you think in terms of uh, Google Ads, Twitter, Facebook, enormous, enormous uh, changes there. So I had to keep up to date with that and help my students stay up to date. And then the second area which uh, I'm involved in teaching is how technology is used Um, in both hospitality and retail, because I've got that uh, background in both. So as you can imagine, keeping up to date with that, making sure that I know what's happening in the industry and um, making sure that the teaching is current and of interest to the students. So that's on the teaching side. So being an industry professional, how has doing research on mobile wallets and e-commerce channels shifted your perspective of the retail and hospitality industry and your key focus area of research? Are there topics that have piqued your interest so much so that they have kind of caused a positive shift in your key area of research? Yes, I'm trying to remember how I got into the mobile wallet. And I had a meeting with the dean quite a number of years back now. And he said, why don't you look at this? And it was, there was some ad about, uh, about mobile wallets. It, it was just coming out, the Google wallet was just coming out. And I thought, hey, that's an interesting topic. And there's a whole area of technology adoption. So from a research point of view, there are quite a number of theories of technology adoption. So academically, research-wise, for those that are interested in research, academic research needs to have some sort of 
foundational theory. So the foundational theories that I found of interest were around adoption and technology adoption model, uh, diffusion of innovations, a unified theory of adoption and use of technology, and there are quite a few others that are that are involved. So I got in, I got interested in those. So I started doing some research and putting together some online surveys, surveying Canadians, doing some research together with Americans, comparing Americans to Canadians, how they look at it, how, how important is privacy, how important is security, why aren't people using a mobile wallet more? And interesting, I just had lunch with a friend of mine, and at the end of the meal, I paid, I was treating him for lunch, and I paid for the meal with my Apple Watch. <laughs> Apple Watch, I just clicked on it, and it was all done. And he looked at me and he said, wow, that's amazing. And he said, uh, but, but I'm afraid to put all this on my phone. I just keep, I want it secure in my front pocket. Mm-hmm. So I haven't got to worry and, uh, about that. And there really is no reason to worry. But from my research, this security aspect is definitely a very significant factor. So that's one area that I've looked at. So you, as mentioned before, you have been a professor at Rice University teaching courses in retail information management, retail operations management, digital marketing, and many more. How has your experience helped you as a teacher and a professor? And how has that been for you in the sense where how are you able to bring in your experiences within the industry to your students and in the classroom? Again, I would say that it, um, because my research keeps me current in terms of what's going on, so I can bring that to the classroom. I must mention another area of research, which uh, uh, I think I entertained my students. I've certainly entertained my uh, faculty with it. A couple of years ago, I went to Kenya. Why Kenya? Yes, my wife and I did go on a safari, but that wasn't the prime reason we went to Kenya. You may or may not know, but Kenya is one of the leading countries in mobile money. We take it for granted that we, we use our phones, we pay with a credit card. Right. It does not have credit cards uh, so much. People, maybe 40% of the population use credit cards, but 95% of the population use their phone to transfer money. And it's something called M-Pesa. Um, so it's very significant. Uh, for example, on Safari, we were miles away from anywhere. And we were able to make payment. We went to a Maasai village. Uh, the chief spoke English. No one else spoke English. We bought a few chachkas. Um, at the end, to transfer money, I just had his phone number and sent the money that way. Tips, paying in a store. I basically did not use cash once in the whole week that we were there. So that's a fascinating area. And then I took that one step further and I got a, um, a shirt grant, a government grant from Canada and thought, wait a sec, if this can be done in Kenya, is there any role for such a technology to help our indigenous people? So I did some work and interviewed quite a number of indigenous people over the phone. I didn't travel over the phone, but uh, interviewed quite a number of indigenous people in Ontario communities way up north. And there are people there, there's a heavy use of cash, but how do they get their cash? In many cases, if they get a check, they've got to go to a machine, they've got to in the machine, it may cost them money to get to a machine. Sometimes it takes them, it costs them $20 to take Mm -hmm. that machine. 
So um, I looked at that, did a number of interviews. Unfortunately, I didn't finish that research. I was going to plan actually to visit a few of the reserves. I didn't in fact finish that re- research because of the COVID there. So I've got some intermediate results in terms of why people are, or where the difficulties are. But that was a whole interesting area, which again, I think is um, very relevant to what's going on today to be able to contrast and understand how technology could help let's say the less advantaged in society yes definitely so speaking of how technology could help i did some digging and i read that around 2016 you have tried a number of different things when it came to restricting the use of electronics in your classes but you were torn whether or not to let students continue to use their personal electronics such as smartphones laptops ipads and etc during class due to your thoughts of electronics being more of a distraction than uses for learning Obviously, many years have passed since 2016. And so how has this changed between 2016 and 2020 prior to the transition of virtual learning due to COVID-19? And what are your thoughts on it now as schools start to slowly transition back to in-person learning? What a great question. Was it really 2016? I would have thought it was before than that. When I, I'll make you laugh. When I first started, what, something like 12 years ago, I said, no gum. I don't like students chewing gum mm-hmm. in my no gum, no phones. And then I had a problem because if a student did chew gum or if a student did look at their phone, what's the punishment? And I just threw a student out of the class with deducted marks. I was the bad guy. So (laughs) I asked a little bit on that. So I relaxed. And now what I realized, you know what? There's really no point in being strict. It's really up to the students. So I have certain rules, but they're really very liberal. You want to use your phone. And even in the, in the physical classroom, there are students, they sit, they could be in the front row, they could be in the back row. And I know they look at their phone and they're not paying attention. That's right. What I do do, uh, my challenge, I have polling questions, which are worth marks. So I basically post various polling questions throughout. And if you haven't been paying attention because you've been looking at your phone, you'll lose some marks. Mm -hmm. Lose marks as well because uh, in the final exam, because you won't have followed what was going on. So now I'm really much more lax. And if we compare that now to the virtual environment, do I know what the student is doing when they've got just a photograph up and a muted microphone? I have no idea what they're doing. For all I know, they they may not even be there they may have just right. <laughs> run away but but again that's their issue but once yeah. i do do is i do have polling questions which are worth marks they have to be logged in they have to be there i have breakout activities they have to be there for the breakout activities i go and visit the breakout rooms so as best as i can i try and prod the student to be engaged but i also try as much as i can to make the uh uh, the, the material of interest and of value to the student. Right. And at the end of the day, it's on the students to take initiative to want to learn, especially. That's right. Yeah. They're, they're, over, they're over 18. They're, they're adults. They're mm-hmm. adults. So I have to treat them as adults. Definitely. So your current research focus is on mobile wallets, and you are currently working on research pertaining to online shopping before, during, and post-pandemic. So relating this back to the hospitality and retail industry and online shopping, I guess you could say, Um, through the services and products the industry has to offer. What are your thoughts on the shift with e-channels and e-purchasing within the hospitality and retail industry? Do you find that the pandemic has caused a drastic shift with with more 
of a use of e-channels within the industry quicker than it was going to originally take the industry to implement slash adapt to? I think, well, I think the answer is yes. Now, I haven't done the research. I'm just at the start of the research. And by the way, it's going to be a multi-country research. I'm working with someone from the United States, someone from Germany. Uh, we're going to collect data from China, the UK. So we've got quite a number of countries to be able to compare the online shopping, let's say, before, during, and after the pandemic. Looking at that and making the comparisons, but I'll tell you an interesting statistic that I looked up as I started this research. I'll pose a question. You don't have to answer it. And anybody's um, listening, um, they can think about it before I give the answer. What percentage of retail sales in Canada are online? So there are the retail sales in Canada, if I remember rightly, are $400 billion a year. What percentage of that is online? I'll pause, don't have an answer. And I must confess that when I first started, I thought it would be about 15 or 20%. Mm -hmm. And I'm now uh, with, with the pandemic. And the answer is 6%. So wow. it's low today. And I've had people say, right. oh, Online is going to take over from, uh, um, from, from physical. You won't go into a store anymore. That's not the case. So it crept up a little bit, maybe by half a percent or 1% from 5% to 6%. Now, again, I, I, I'm giving data, which is uh, from maybe three or four months ago, and maybe it's gone up more since then. So what's interesting is, yes, online did go up, but we're still very dependent upon in-store shopping. My guess is that this has been a tremendous boost. We, we can look and see over the years that online shopping has been growing without it. Right. And uh, we, this has given it a boost. And it's, I don't believe it will go back to pre-pandemic levels. Now, if we move over just one sec, if we move over to the hospitality um, uh, area and think about restaurants, well, restaurants have really been hit um, enormously. And I think in terms of online or online ordering, that has gone up enormously. Now, I haven't looked at that yet. I've just concentrated online, on the online shopping. I haven't been able to mix those researches, uh, but that would be something that I would like to look at in the future to be able to find out how restaurant went, went up, online ordering, and whether that's going to go down, how much will, of that will go down. And as a, by the way, I just read in the newspaper today, I think it was, uh, it was Wendy's, it was Wendy's. Wendy's was just opening more kitchens mm -hmm. out any seating, because what, they've, what they realize is that more people wish to just order ready food. So not even go out to the Wendy's of sitting on a Wednesday, Wendy's, right. but just get it from as a kitchen. So speaking of the future, what route do you see the retail industry going within the next few years? What big changes do you think will come within the retail industry as technology investments and adoptions happen more and more frequently? I think it's both for both retail and hospitality, you will see more technology coming in. And I'll give you an example of that straight away. Yeah, it was a shopper's drug mart that I went into. There's one near us. So I think if I go back three years ago, they had, I don't know, six checkout lanes. Mm -hmm. Like maybe two years ago, they had four checkout lanes and four kiosks. And I was in there just yesterday, and they have one checkout lane and eight kiosks. Wow. That's a big difference. And of course, what we see is we see the uh, 
the merchandisers in the stores going around with their handhelds and looking at the stock levels with artificial intelligence, with big data, we can see a lot of that work can be done by the computers. So really what's happening is that there's going to be less need for the lower skilled work, but more need for the higher skilled work, which of course is where Ryerson comes in. And the same applies uh, in the hospitality and the restaurant uh, business. In fact, I was just, <laughs> I treated my friend to lunch when I paid my watch. What was fascinating, uh, actually it was an Eastside Mario's. So I'll give an ad for Eastside Mario's. <laughs> Mario's. We're looking for the menu. Where's the menu? So she said, look, look on your table. There's a QR code. We don't want to give you a physical menu. There's a QR code. So we took our phone. Uh, we clicked on the uh, QR code, up popped the menu, and that's how we ordered. And I know there's a couple of restaurants that have iPads, and you order directly from their iPad. Yeah. So what does that mean as far as a server is concerned? And there are some places as well where you can actually pay and add the tip. So you basically don't, don't say to the server, I'm ready to pay. You simply uh, go to the iPad that's on your table, say, give me the bill. It gives you the bill. So the server's role is less, but then you, in terms of, wait a sec, what about managing the technology? What about managing the technology in the kitchen? And the same applies as far as hotels are concerned as well. So there's much more in the way of kiosks in the lobby, but there's much more skills needed to be able to manage the guests, uh, give them the right environment, uh, the right experience, as well as managing all the technology that is there. Right. Many of the, the summer patios that have been going to in Toronto, especially, I have never been given a single handheld menu yet. It's always been QR codes. And often I find myself just questioning that kind of like prioritizing the QR codes and prioritizing technology advancements. How do you feel? Well, I often think that how inaccessible it can be to serve to some people who may not be tech savvy. Example, my parents, if they were to go to a restaurant and they were given a QR code, they would not know what to do with it. They would be waiting around for someone to give them a menu, right? I think so, you hit on two very big challenges and you're right. There is that part of the community that mm -hmm. have a smartphone, the digital divide, they don't have a smartphone, they're not comfortable with the technology. And yes, we think of it as in terms of all ages, but you know what? There are some younger ages which are not comfortable. There are some right. just maybe from an economic point of view that haven't got a smartphone mm -hmm. or point of view. I don't want my child to have a smartphone until they're 18, whatever the case may be. So there's that aspect. And there's another very, very challenging aspect. What's the service? How do you differentiate your hotel, your restaurant, your retail store? How do you differentiate yourself from the competition? Right. If Everybody is uh, just doing a QR code or just a technology. You, you never see a face at all mm -hmm. and they'll it with you. But what's the difference? So we're back to the challenge as far as how do you define service in this technologically advancing age? Yes, exactly. So speaking of service, uh, many hotels have implemented guest check-in and check-out to be done through their mobile phones, while many businesses such as Shoppers Drug Mart, as you mentioned, um, have also implemented self-checkout systems since the start of the pandemic to implement the less face-to-face -face contact as COVID-19 safety measures. So not only does this make it more of an efficient, quick and effortless process, some may argue it takes away from the experience and the service itself. So how do you feel that this changes the level of service and security within the hospitality and retail industry post-pandemic when some hotels and businesses will continue to offer mobile check-in and check-out and also self-checkout options for their guests? Do you feel 
that this caters to a new market segment and kind of creates an opportunity for hotels and retailers to implement more marketing and sales strategies targeted towards guests who prefer to use smartphones and smart systems versus the face-to-face service. I, yes, you hit upon it, but I think you're back to dollars and cents. So if you think of hotels, I don't know, two-star, three-star, five-star, seven-star, whatever, well, a two-star hotel, what am I going, why am I going to a two-star hotel? Because I need to save money. And if I don't see anybody, and as long as my room is clean, um, that's fine. And it can all be done most don't see anybody at all, and that's fine, no problem whatsoever. But you know what, if it's a five-star, I do expect to see someone. And if what five-stars typically do they're going to add a little bit more technology to it all. So you've perhaps booked in, you're a Four Seasons member, you arrive at the airport, uh, GPS knows that uh, you're there, uh, the hotel now knows you're there, the hotel can send you a link to your room, welcome Mr. Shaw, and when you arrive, they know you're about to arrive. Oh, hello, Mr. Shaw, because they know that you've arrived. So someone is there to greet you. Now that costs money, that costs money. Terms of technology but also in terms of having people there but for a five-star hotel you're now differentiating yourself if you go to a two-star or three-star hotel if you see no one behind the front desk will have to ring a bell and wait a minute or two okay you're fine a five-star hotel you expect to see someone behind the desk all the time and be ready for you so it's difference of dollars and cents, but you're willing to pay for it. And they, so, so it's that service level that's going to be different. It's going to be a differentiator and how they use the technology. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, and I'm going back a few years, but I worked for a hotel company in California. And uh, we were looking at opening a hotel in, actually in, in Florida it was. And when we arrived at that particular hotel, they knew we were coming. We were greeted by... Um, the concierge with an iPad who took us to the room. We didn't have to check in because they checked us in for us. Um, And they were able to give us the code for our room, but there was the personal touch. There was no need for that person to do it, Mm -hmm. a personal touch. So you have to work out what you want to spend on service and add it in terms of the personal touch and make sure the guest is happy. Do you find that retailers in the hospitality industry will start to go back to more face-to-face contact in terms of to differentiate their market and their business from others? As you mentioned before, with the QR codes, everyone is is starting to look a little bit same now. So do you think that they would start implementing more face-to-face as they see that more people are looking for that aspect of service a little bit more or? Um, I, I, I would say if you speak about luxury, the answer would be yes, they're not going to take service uh, aspect. If you go down one notch, what's going to become important is, I mean, think of, um, I can think of retail stores, I can think of hotels. So if you think, for example, of a retail store, let's let's think of H&M, or no, on, let's think of The Gap, and let's think of Banana Republic. Same company, by the way. Mm-hmm a different image so even if you don't see anybody and you're not served they basically as a very simple thing the banana republic has got less merchandise displayed it's more easy to walk around the aisles are wider 
the decor has got a slightly more luxurious touch. And I'm not speaking about a luxury, uh, luxury uh, environment there. So this is what a retailer does. And similarly with a hotel, if you think, for example, well, let's just take a Marriott, which is a good class hotel, take a courtyard Marriott, which is one level down, and take a JW Marriott, which is a level above. So you know, if, if I were to blindfold you and you didn't know which hotel you were going in, and you walked into the lobby of those hotels and you didn't see anybody, you would still know that you are in different levels of hotel. Right. Of course, if you go to the JW Marriott, you would expect to see two or three people behind the front desk. Maybe in the Marriott, you'd expect to see one person behind the front desk. And in, uh, in the courtyard, maybe there's no one behind the front desk. Oh, and by the way, let me add another thing. Um, I was also involved in opening in a Hard Rock Hotel in San Diego and the technology there. There was no front desk. What they did was they had I'll say comfortable tables where a kind of concierge front desk person would sit. So when the guests came in, they'd come round. They wouldn't be behind the desk. They would be in front with you. So again, part and parcel of the image of customer service, but using the technology together with the. So to end off, um, we have all had to have started somewhere by the help of and mentorship of others, whether it be our parents, teachers, and professors, mentors, and other researchers. Is there anyone who has influenced or shaped your career as a researcher and as a professor? Oh my God. Um, yes, but I'm going to say there's, I, I don't want to name anybody. Actually, uh, I, I did my doctorate about 15 years ago. So I had a supervisor then. So I, I've, I've had a, a, a good, a successful career in industry, in both the retail industry and the hospitality industry. And I was doing some strategic consulting at the end, both retail and hospitality, before I went, uh, came into academia. So when I came into academia, I was, you know, I had a good experience as far as consulting was concerned and as far as industry was concerned. So I had to learn what academia was. So I had a supervisor. I did my, uh, my doctorate as a distance education at Henley, Henley Business School, which is just outside of London, a beautiful um, area just on the River Thames, just outside London. And I would go over there a few times a year and I had an excellent supervisor. And one of the things, this will be very, very good for any of your researchers. One of the things that he would always, always tell me when I would pre present a draft to him, he would say, Norman, you're telling a story. So make sure that you're telling a story and the person understands the beginning and can see where you're going and there's an end. So that was very influential. And then another time I gave a presentation, it was my very first presentation actually at Ryerson to a group of academics. This is a presentation um, as a researcher. I hadn't got my uh, doctorate yet and I gave a presentation. And as a consultant, when you consult, you basically have to say, look, I'm a consultant, I'm a clever guy, I've done this, people have hired me, and therefore you're going to hire me, right? As an academic, you don't do that. As mm -hmm. an academic, you say, look, um, John Smith said that, and uh, uh, Joe Jones said something else. So it's what you know other people have done versus what you've done. And I learned that the hard way because I thought I'd given an excellent presentation. And uh, one of the profs there said, Norman, you got it all wrong. You're 180 degrees wrong. And that was a big blow. But when I picked myself up, I, I understood the difference. <laughs> Let's say business, consulting, and research, academic research. So those were the two very influential incidences which are very vivid in my mind. 
That's great advice given to you. So as for my last question, are there any key takeaways for the listeners who may be current or future researchers, students, industry professionals, and anyone else listening? Okay, I'm going to give you a trite phrase, which you've probably heard. And I remember my teachers at my school, which was many years ago, telling me this. What you put in, you get out. If you come to my lecture and you look at your cell phone the whole time, you're not going to learn very much. If you go to anybody else's lecture and do the same thing, you're not going to learn very much. If you do some research and your research just skims the surface, you're not going to be much of a researcher. But if you're interested in the topic, and you know what? Find a topic that is of interest. If you don't like the course that you're doing, you know what? Find part of that course that is of interest and put your passion into that. So also from a research point of view, find something in your, don't research something you don't like, find something that you do like. And you've got time, time is on your side to wander around in your mind, to find out, to chat to other people, to find out what they're doing. Passion, if you've got passion, you'll find the energy for it. And another thing that I'm sure people have heard, you know what, if you end up, doing something which is like your hobby as work, wow. In other words, you're working on something that you like. What could be better than that? Yeah, you've won in that sense. (laughs) That's it. That's great. Thank you so much. I would like to thank Norman Shaw, professor and researcher here at Ted Rogers School of Management for his time here today. I am Parita Shaw, and this was Behind the Study, an exploratory podcast presented by Ryerson's Institute for Hospitality and Tourism Research. I hope you will join us for the next, next podcast. Have a great day.